The, uh, the Gospel of Mark has always been one of my favorite books of the Bible. Back in 2015, I preached on the first two portions of March, Mark chapter 1. And so I thought that these next two Sunday mornings, when I have the opportunity to look at God's Word with you, I would preach on the next two sections of Mark chapter 1, while also continuing to look at 2 Corinthians in the evenings. Now to give the text that we're looking at this morning a bit of context, in, Matthew, I'm sorry, in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, Jesus and John the Baptist are introduced. In Mark 1, verses 9 through 11, Jesus is baptized, he's anointed by the Holy Spirit, he's declared to be God's Son, and then immediately, we read, he was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan. After resisting temptation there, after proving victorious in his first battle with Satan in the wilderness, Jesus then comes to Galilee and begins preaching and gathers his first disciples around himself. And so it's after these initial events that we come now to Mark 1, verse 21. And so with that in mind, let's hear from Mark 1, 21 to 29. And please do listen carefully. This is God's word for us this morning. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and that it has something for us this morning. We pray that you would help us to attend to it well. Give us eyes to see what you are showing us here. Give us ears to hear what you would tell us. We ask that you would grant this for your glory and for our good. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In February of 2009, about 70 students from my alma mater, NYU, stormed the cafeteria in the student center, barricaded the doors shut, and declared that they were staging an occupation and they would not leave the cafeteria until NYU met a, met a list of demands that they had. This was a couple of years before the Occupy Wall Street movement that occurred in 2011, so the students weren't exactly copying that, but students at other universities had recently done somewhat similar things, and I guess some of the students at NYU felt that it was time for them to have an occupation. It was a very NYU kind of thing to do, to choose to attend a school like NYU, to want all the social and economic benefits that might come with attending a school like NYU, but then also to want to stage a massive protest against the school that you just chose to attend. I went to NYU so I can say that there's some accuracy in that picture. Now, I graduated years earlier, but when this happened, I did follow it closely. It did make national news. It was covered by the New York Times. But the occupation ended about 40 hours after it began. On the Friday afternoon uh, of the occupation, the remaining students 
who had taken over the cafeteria, saw security guards and police approaching the doors. They gathered around the jumble of tables and chairs that they had piled up at the two doors that went directly into the cafeteria from the hallway. They were ready to hold the barricades in place. They were ready, in some sense, for a struggle. And as they stood there, bracing the barricades at these two doorways, they heard the clanging of a metal gate. And they turned their heads to see what was happening. You see, besides the two doors, there was another entranceway into the cafeteria. It was through the area where food was normally sold. When you went up to the third floor in the student center there, there were three ways to go into the cafeteria. You could take one of the two doors that went directly in from the hallway, but also you could choose to go into the shop where food was sold. You could get your food, and then at the end of that, you would pass through the cash registers, pay for your food, and walk directly into the cafeteria. It was actually a pretty large opening, uh, bigger than either of the two doors that had been blocked. But when the store was closed, there was a metal gate that was pulled down to block that entrance, kind of like the gates you see in the mall when stores are closing down for the day. Now the students, for their occupation, had thought to block the two regular doors that entered the cafeteria, but in fact they'd actually put a large pile of chairs and tables at each one, but it apparently had not occurred to them to do anything about the really large gated entries by the cash registers. So when security and police decided that it was time for the occupation to end, they merely unlocked the metal gate, lifted it up, and walked in a big, unobstructed entranceway while the protesting students stood by the barricades at the other doors, surprised, confused, and with, I imagine, not-so-bright looks on their faces. As an NYU graduate myself, I did not feel that this was a shining moment that advertised the intelligence of NYU students or graduates, so you can take from that what you will. But my point in telling that story is that somehow, with all of their planning, with all the work that they did to keep their opponents out, the NYU students had missed something important. They had failed to see the biggest entryway into the place that they were trying to barricade. They had overlooked a majority of the battlefield, if you will. And as a result, they were overtaken easily. Embarrassingly easily, actually. I want to suggest that in our text this morning, the Jews in the synagogue of Capernaum are a bit like those NYU protesters. I imagine that they might have had similar looks on their faces on the morning that we have just read about. Because you need to appreciate how surprising the scene would be for a first century Jew. Commentator Mark Horn points this out. Jesus, on being anointed with God's spirit, went immediately to the desert to do spiritual battle with Satan. Now, Jesus has gathered his followers. He has, in a sense, his spiritual army, and we might imagine that more spiritual battle is to come. And if we imagine that, we would be right. So where does Jesus go to fight Satan's forces next? Does he return to the wilderness? Well, no. Does he go to the Roman garrison in Capernaum to face the pagans and wage spiritual war there? Well, no. He goes instead to the synagogue. And it's there that he finds demons to fight. And we need to appreciate how jarring that is. Think for a minute about the people whom he is among. These people are from Capernaum. This is a town where the majority of people are Jews and not pagans. They are Jews who identify with Yahweh. 
the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the God whom Jesus is proclaiming. In a world that's overrun by paganism, this is a town of the faithful. Now, of course, we also know that some Jews are more faithful than others. But it's worth noting that Jesus doesn't just show up on the street corner in Capernaum and do this. He doesn't just walk into the marketplace and speak to the Jews who happen to be gathered there. He goes instead to the synagogue. E.P. Sanders argues that while the synagogue was a very important part of Jewish faith at this point in time, it's not clear that all Jews actually attended the synagogue on the Sabbath. It appears that some did not. And so one would imagine that those whose faith was, was more superficial would not be there. In other words, to go to the synagogue in Capernaum on the Sabbath is to go to be with those who had made great efforts to remove themselves from the pagan world around them. The first century Jew saw the sin of the pagan world surrounding them as a serious problem. And so these Jews in the synagogue had barricaded the doors against the influence of the world. A lot like those NYU students had barricaded the doors that came in from the hallway. And then who shows up in their midst? Who, it turns out, is sitting right next to one of them in the pew at Sabbath worship? It's an unclean spirit, a demon, one of the forces of Satan. That's who stands up to talk in verse 23. And I imagine that those Jews in the synagogue had looks on their faces a lot like the NYU students in the cafeteria. For all their work at separation, they had missed a significant part of the battlefield. So focused on distancing themselves from the Romans, they had failed to see Satan stroll in through an unbarricaded gate. There are several things that are going on in this text, but one of them is that we're being shown that people in general, and God's people in particular, have a tendency to miss part of the spiritual battlefield. We have a tendency to maybe focus on a third of it in some cases and neglect the other two-thirds. We have a tendency like those NYU protesters to put all sorts of barricades up over two doors from the hallway and completely miss the large gate the biggest entryway into the room. The Jews seem to have done that here and really throughout the Gospel of Mark. Many of the first century Palestinian Jews are extremely guarded about the threat of the world around them. They see the Roman occupation as the chief problem that's facing them. They see it as the chief threat to both their physical and their spiritual well-being. And they take action accordingly. They treat the Romans as unclean, even though biblical law does not regard Gentiles as unclean. They separate themselves beyond what the law requires. Some of them join, or at least quietly endorse, Jewish zealots who assassinate and attack the Roman occupiers and leaders from time to time. Others are busy policing their fellow Jews, making sure that they do not give in to Roman ways. The Jews are on guard about the Roman threat. But meanwhile... We see here that the land of the Jews, the land of God's people, is filled with demons. God's people had missed a major part of the battlefield. The scriptures tell us that the three fronts on which we as Christians must do spiritual battle are the world, the flesh, and the devil. In Mark 1, we see that the first century Jews had focused so much on the battle with the world that they had largely neglected the battlefield facing the devil. Until one Sabbath, when they went to the synagogue 
and discovered that morning that one of Satan's army was sitting on the pew right next to them. I want to suggest this morning that God's people in the first century, that these Jews that we find here in the synagogue are not that unique. That we are not that different from them. And that that's true both for Christians and for non-Christians. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're likely either a bit amused or a bit freaked out at this point in the sermon because there's a grown man who's been standing in front of you in 2017 telling people that they should be concerned about demons. And no one is laughing. And so you might be wondering what is going on with these people. It is, of course, common in our culture to find ideas like this ridiculous, to find a belief in demons and exorcism as something that is almost laughable. But let me take just a minute to challenge the assumption that what we find in our text this morning, what I'm saying this morning, is ridiculous. And let me challenge it both in regards to this text that we find here in Mark and also in regards to our experience today. First, let's think about it in terms of the text. I think it's easy, it's almost automatic for us as modern people to respond to a story like this with a sort of chronological snobbery. We read it and we say, look, sure, people then thought that all sorts of bad things came from demons. Everyone was like that. They assumed that holy men went around all the time casting out demons. The Bible is a product of its time. But today we know better. Which is why following the Bible on these things is ridiculous. It's really just a relic of ancient superstitions. That's the sort of knee-jerk reaction that many in our culture have. It's what we tend often to think as modern people. But it's not actually accurate to say that the, the stories in the Bible here reflect their time. First, we should note that stories like this are not actually that common in the Bible. The Bible isn't filled with stories of exorcisms. In fact, older texts in the Bible don't have demons show up nearly as often as the Gospel of Mark does. And in fact, neither does most of the New Testament. The Bible doesn't attribute every kind of personal or physical or spiritual malady directly to a demon. And the older books of the Bible arguably do it less often than the Gospels do. In fact, the frequency of demonic encounters and exorcism is unique in the Bible to first century Palestine during the ministry of Jesus. So the appearance of these stories doesn't seem like it can be explained away simply as a result of the older, non-scientific worldview that the Bible was written from. If that was the case, we'd expect more stories like it, especially in earlier parts of the Bible, but we don't find them. But beyond that, this story in Mark and others like them in this gospel are historically unique as well. E.F. Kirshner, in his survey of exorcism in ancient literature, found that while many ancient texts referred to exorcisms or even to exorcism techniques, very few narratives of exorcisms actually exist in ancient sources. And most of the narratives that do exist are actually from the New Testament and particularly from the Gospel of Mark. There are even fewer exorcist figures in ancient literature. And some of those who do show up are clearly meant to be seen in the text as legendary or at least semi-legendary. Krishna goes on to say this. He says, The only exorcistic figure in the extent literature to whom a number of exorcism stories are ascribed and related in detail is the biblical figure of Jesus of Nazareth. Commentator R.T. France 
explains the significance of that. He says, We are not therefore entitled to assume that Mark's readers, on being confronted at the outset by an exorcism, would respond, But of course, that is what one would expect from any special religious figure. They and we are expected to recognize here, as the synagogue congregation did, a remarkable new teaching with authority. In other words, there is not a plausible reason why an early gospel writer like Mark would make these stories up. No one at the time or from biblical predictions was expecting stories like this. And so we need to at least seriously consider these accounts that we find as historic texts. That's the first thing for us to think about if we find these stories a little bit hard to believe. The second, though, is to consider our own experience in the world. It's not uncommon for people, even people who are not very religious, to admit that some spiritual force must lie behind the good things in this world. The love, the goodness, the truth, the beauty that we encounter here. We sense on some level that there's something more to the world than what we see. Some sort of good force, even a personal force, some form of God. Let me also suggest that if we see the world as it is, we must also realize that there is some spiritual force, some spiritual person that is behind the evil in this world. To read history, to read the news, to know someone who has been abused or mistreated as a child, to know about the kind of degradation and suffering and abuse that so many people in this world face so often, and to then deny that there might be a malevolent spiritual force behind it, in my opinion, that requires more willful blindness than I can muster. And so let me suggest to you that maybe it is not those who say that there is a malevolent spiritual force in the world that are the naive ones, but maybe it's those who deny that there's one. Such a view as I see it, requires rosier glasses than I can bring myself to wear. Now, as Christians, we do not think that the malevolent spiritual force is equal to an opposite, an opposite counterpart from God. We believe that Satan is a created being, an angel who rebelled against God, a rebel whom God will ultimately defeat. But he is still a being and a force and a person who is stronger than we are as mere humans. And he's also not alone. He has other angels who have followed him and who desire to kill and degrade and destroy us and all that God has made. As you look at our world, as you let yourself see what happens every day in this world that we live in, is it really so implausible that such a being exists? And maybe you do care a great deal about justice and oppression and abuse in this world, But if these spiritual beings that we're talking about exist, then is it possible that when trying to fight the forces of evil in your life and in this world, when trying to fight injustice and oppression, but neglecting this spiritual foe at the same time, is it possible that in those moments you're a bit like those NYU students, holding the barricade on the door while your opponents stroll in by the large gate that you overlooked? Now, if you are a Christian, you know that these biblical accounts are truthful. You know that these things happened. You believe that Satan and his forces are real. But let me also suggest that I think we, too, can be like those NYU students. We, too, can be like those onlookers in the synagogue in Capernaum. 
In fact, let me suggest that Christians have struggled with that tendency throughout history. You see this, I think, for example, in the monastic movement. In fact, in some ways, I think that the history of the monastic movement can be read, at least in part, as a history of Christians focusing on separation from the sinful world, thinking that that separation from the world will keep them spiritually safe, and then collapsing from within as the flesh and the devil overtake them without nearly as much of a fight as one might expect. Of course, we can study the monastic movement throughout history and see good things that it has brought to the church and to our culture, and yet this dynamic, I think, still exists. While the first Christian hermits emerged in the late 3rd century, the first organized monastic communities came about during the 4th. These communities centered on vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience, and life for them was to be ascetic and to be centered on worship, prayer, and work. All of this was designed to be separated from the world. The idea was to leave the world in order to seek your salvation. In the 4th and 5th century, these monastic communities spread, but as much as they kept the world out, sin soon came in anyway, especially in the form of pride. Individuals and groups tried to show their spiritual superiority over other monks and even other monasteries. While wholly separated from the world, pride became the operating motivation in many monasteries. It was in part in response to this that St. Benedict wrote his famous rule in the 6th century to, among other things, prescribe a uniform way of life that was intended in part to eliminate this prideful competition. The Benedictine monasteries that grew up in the 6th century were each, in historian David Knowles' words, a Christian family apart from the world, and with no interest outside its walls. They lived together to serve God and to save their souls. These Benedictine monks had set up firm walls against the world to keep out its influences. But despite their best efforts to keep out the world, again and again, the flesh and the devil brought corruption. It was not long before the Benedictine monks developed an elevated view of themselves. Pride and then sloth set in. By the 8th century, Charlemagne and then his son tried to bring reform to these monasteries that, though separate from the world, continued to decline spiritually. But their efforts at reform were largely unsuccessful. Things got worse into the 9th century. Then in the 10th century, the Cluniacs staged a massive reform effort, trying to bring spiritual renewal to the monastic world in the West. And at first it seemed to be working, but only for a time. Despite the cloister walls, decline came in forms of greed, the desire for power, and again, a tendency towards sloth. And so at the end of the 11th century, the Cistercians launched their reform effort to correct the spiritual decline of the Cluniacs. But then soon, bitter rivalry between these two orders, rooted in spiritual pride, broke out. Though their walls may have kept the world at bay, the flesh and the devil seemed to be having a field day with them. By the end of the 12th century, the Cistercians had lost their fervor. They had become known around parts of Europe for their greed, their injustice towards others in financial matters, and their constant self-interest. By the time of the Protestant Reformation, many reformers found decay and decadence in many of the monasteries. And when they did, it really wasn't anything new. The study of Benedictine monasticism is a case study 
in how when God's people focus exclusively on separation from the world and neglect the rest of the spiritual battlefield, then the flesh and the devil will stroll right into their lives and wreak havoc. In light of that history, I find it somewhat interesting that many evangelicals today are looking to the Benedictine monasteries for a spiritual strategy for us to adopt. The obvious example of this is Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option, that has been featured on the cover of Christianity Today and been a part of a number of Christian discussions over the past year. Now, I'm a strong advocate for looking to the church's past and gaining from its wisdom and finding their wisdom that leads us into how we deal with the problems that we face today. And there is much good advice in Dreher's book. But I think one of the biggest dangers with Dreher's book and with others who are advocating similar positions is not so much what they're saying, but what they're not saying. For all his discussion on the dangers of the world, Dreher's book has, in my reading at least, little to say about the flesh and the devil. I'm not sure, then, that it's fair to qualify it as the subtitle claims as, quote, a strategy for Christians in a post-Christian nation. I do think it might qualify for part of one-third of a strategy, but not for the whole thing. And that's fine, and a resource like that can be very helpful, so long as we realize that it's not a whole strategy. If we mistake separation from the world for a complete strategy for the Christian life, then we run the risk of finding ourselves repeating the error of the original Benedictines. We risk finding ourselves like those synagogue attenders in Capernaum, thoroughly separated from the surrounding paganism, but sitting next to a demon, holding the barricade against the door while the devil walks in through the large open gate. So we see the problem that this text pushes us to face. We as God's people much like God's people in this text and before us, are prone to overlooking a large portion of the spiritual battlefield in our lives. The first thing we need to do is acknowledge that. But once that's acknowledged, what do we do next? How do we do battle on this other front that we see here, this battlefield with the devil? What does that look like for us? How do we live that out? Well, I think we get an answer to that in our text. We get an answer for that in how Jesus responds to this demon. Let's look at it once more, starting with verse 23. Mark writes, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. How does Jesus defeat this unclean spirit, this satanic oppressor? Commentator R.T. France makes an important observation here. He says, There's a notable lack of technique about this as about all the exorcism stories in the Gospels. There is no incantation, no ritual, no props of any kind, simply an authoritative word of command. That seems to settle the matter. I think the text makes it very clear. The thing that defeats Satan and his forces is not a technique, 
It's not a strategy. It's not a specific kind of effort or ritual. The only thing that sends the demon, demons running is Jesus. This brings us back again to the unique nature of exorcisms in the Bible. Exorcism is not taught to Israel's priests in the Old Testament. It's also not taught to those in the New Testament church. On a few occasions, we see those whom Jesus himself has sent out casting out demons, but even then, that is mainly done to show that their ministry is a direct extension of his. It's not the normal thing that we see. The New Testament instructs the church in many things, but it never instructs us in how to do an exorcism. Because the Bible's answer for the reality of demons is not about the strategies available to us. It's about the person who is by our side. Only the person of Jesus can truly save us from our spiritual enemies. That's the message that this text puts forward. So what does that look like for us? We face Satan and his forces. Now we need to acknowledge that we do not experience them the same way as the man in this passage does. We are told in the scriptures that as Christians we have been set free from the tyranny of the devil. The devil is not our master. We are already released from him. We are also told that Jesus has struck the decisive blow to Satan and his forces in his own death and resurrection. Our situation is not identical to the first century Jews we read about here, but people who are living in a fairly unique moment of redemptive history. And so we should not expect our battles with Satan's forces to look exactly like theirs do. But Satan still is a reality that we must deal with. The Apostle Peter warns us to be on guard because the devil is our adversary and he is prowling around for someone to devour. He wants to tempt us. He wants to harass us. He wants to destroy us and those whom we love. He wants to tempt you into sin. What are those sins that tug at your heart? What is that thing that, if anything were to make a spiritual train wreck of your life, you know that that might be the temptation that could do it? It's your weak spot. What is that for you? Satan wants to fan that sinful desire into a flame. Sure, he'll use the world to do that if he can, but he doesn't need the world in order to tempt you. Separating yourself from the world's influence in some areas of life might be a good and wise thing to do. But it won't stop the devil. Or maybe consider this. Where are your most important relationships vulnerable? Where might Satan seek to destroy what is good in your life, especially in your relationships? Where might he sow discord or strife or pride? Because that's what he'll seek to do. Again, he might use the world to do that if it's available, but he doesn't need to use the world. And no technique alone is going to stop him from trying. Or ask yourself, where would it be most easy for you to be deceived? What areas of your life might you err spiritually through foolishness or carelessness or overconfidence or just a desire for something new and different? Satan and his forces will target that weak spot. Again, they may use the world as an instrument, but they don't need it. As helpful as turning from the world may be in some areas of life, it won't cause Satan to give up. And so if that's the case, what are we to do? How do we respond to the temptations and the threats of Satan in our lives? 
I think the best picture of what we are called to do may come from our children, especially from the littler ones. When my one-year-old encounters something that is big or loud or scary, she knows what to do. She doesn't look for a technique. She doesn't try to control or handle the situation. My one-year-old knows when she is outmatched. And when she realizes that she's outmatched, she turns and she speed crawls either to me or to Rachel, whoever's closest. She lays hold of us and then clings to us and does not let go. When Glory, our toddler, knows that she is outgunned, she runs to the one who she knows can defend her. The Bible would call that wisdom. And we are called to do the same thing. Our calling, when we are outgunned, when the world, the flesh, and especially the devil and his forces come after us, is to do nothing other than to run to, to lay hold of, and to cling to Christ so that he can protect us. Many commentators have noted, and you'll see it in the footnoted translation of your ESV Bible, that the line, deliver us from evil, from the Lord's Prayer, from that prayer that we just prayed, that the Lord taught us to pray, is probably best translated, deliver us from the evil one, and is likely intended to be a reference to Satan. In other words, Jesus wanted us to pray daily, not just for our bread, but for his spiritual protection of us against the devil. He wanted us to see ourselves as reliant on him for the things that we get every day as we are for spiritual protection. It is only the person of Jesus, our clinging to him in faith, and his power in our lives as a result that will keep us spiritually safe, that will deliver us from the evil one. And so our calling is to cling to him through prayer, through his word, through his people, through his sacraments, not as instruments in themselves, but as means whereby we hold on to Jesus. And I'm not sure we always like that. In some cases, I think we prefer to be able to handle things ourselves rather than to have to rely on him. In some cases, I think we prefer a technique to a person that we must relate to. We prefer to be in control. But control and technique are not the Christian faith. At the end of the day, at its bedrock, the Christian faith is about Jesus Christ and what our relationship is to him. Only he can fight off the monsters that we face in this life. Those who urge us to have greater separation from the world are often described as alarmists by their opponents, whether they were the first century Jews urging radical separation from the Romans, or the sixth century abbot urging others to leave the world for the cloister, or a 21st century author urging separation from secular society. Our text this morning reminds us that the greatest danger with such alarmists is not that they overstate our enemies, but that they understate them. That by focusing so intently on one field, the threats to us from the unbelieving world, they can unintentionally cause us to forget about the other two-thirds of the battlefield, that of the flesh, and as we see in our text this morning, that of the devil. As long as we keep the battlefield small in our minds, we might believe that we can control things, that we can keep ourselves safe if we just have the right structure and the right strategy. But when we see the true scope of the battlefield, 
our self-confidence should vanish. When we see the true scope of the battlefield, we realize that we do not need a technique. We need a champion who will protect us. If our answer to the threats and temptations around us is ever a strategy that does anything other than help us to keep close to Jesus so that he can win our battles, then our strategies will ultimately fail. Instead, any successful technique must be some variation on exactly what a toddler knows to do when she is in danger. Fleeing to one who is stronger than us, laying hold of him, and clinging to him closely. Christ has conquered Satan. Christ has conquered sin and death. Christ has overcome this world. Christ has the authority and the power to protect us as people. If we are to persevere into the future as individuals, as families, as churches, let us see the battlefield for what it is. And let us cling to the only one who can save us. Let us remember the promises of God, summarized in the words of the hymn writer, God saying to his people, The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Amen.